Frank, please, please go ahead with your question. Thanks, Donna. Hey, Tom. Uh, I had a question regarding um, copying of IOOCs. Uh, so you've often said that the LCS can simply copy IOOCs when in a virtual reality like ours, there is a population growth and new seats need to be filled with players. However, you've also said that when in a VR like ours, the population goes down, then those IOOCs that played avatars here can log on to other realities. And you've also said that copying IUOCs is not really always the best way for evolution because evolution seeks diversity, not more of the same. I think you gave once an example of uh, this little point in having an entire planet populated only by goldfish, for example. <laughs> so I wonder now whether uh, this whole process of cloning IUOCs, uh, have you verified that? that it does happen or were you more considering that as a possibility when more, you know, when we have population growth here and uh, there are more humans on our planet? Almost everything I say, Frank, I say it as a logical possibility. Some things, you know, when I'm in the far reaches of theory like that, you know, what does the LCS do? You know, when I'm answering those kinds of questions, it's basically logically possible and it seems the most likely because the alternatives have other issues, other problems. Now, when I said it does a, a copy and paste, and let's say it has to add, you know, a thousand new seats today because the population went up by, or maybe 10,000 went up today. If that's the case, it obviously is not going to pick one and paste it 10,000 times because that's counterproductive. That's, that's not being, that's not using the power of diversity. What it's going to do, it's going to go out and look at, um, the average, the population. And it's probably going to take, it may take random draws out of that population or it may just pick from the average, or it may you know, say, okay, I'm going to take the average and I'm going to go plus or minus, uh, you know, five sigma on either side. Now, for those of you who aren't techies, five sigma means quite a bit of change, but not excessive change. So we're going to go plus or minus five standard deviations is what that is. What that is. And, and, um, they may do that. He may just take samples out of that. So it's hard to say. I don't really go into the details of how the system might want to execute that. But, you know, when when the system first created these and when it created a lot of seats, let's say, to inhabit this planet, it had a lot of seats to create. I would think that it would have some way of some process, even some algorithm of assuring diversity, you know, and maybe some of those things are the reasons, you know, it may have this, okay, here are, here are um, 12 different characteristics that people have, you know, we'll make it up 12 or maybe, you know, 16 or something. And then we will randomly pick, you know, three of those 12 and combine them and make that a somebody, you know, some kind of process like that that would 
that would um, produce diversity because diversity is is good. So I don't think it just makes one up and then makes a hundred copies of that one and puts them out there. That wouldn't make much sense. Matter of fact, that may be why um, the people doing astrology who connect birth times and birth places as important to what happens, you know, what to what the character is like. You know, if you're a, a Leo or a Sagittarius or something, you have certain characteristics. Perhaps that is part of the way the system did their random draws, just depended on where the person was and what the time was. You know, we do that in random number generations often. To give the seed for the random number generator, we'll go to the clock in the computer and grab something and then take the, you know, the three numbers that were digit six, seven, and eight in that time. You know, the, the time comes out as maybe a 12 digit number and we'll take, and we'll take digit six, seven, and eight as the three digits. And that then will be the seed for our random number generator. That way we kind of randomize our seeds by using the clock time to grab a, a different number every time. Otherwise you have a random number generating, generating random numbers for seeds for random numbers. And it, uh, it's nice to just reach into something like a clock to get that. The system may have said, all right, by, by time and place, those will be two inputs that'll be different for everybody. Nobody's born in exactly the same spot at exactly the same time. Well, not many perhaps in those days. And it may be a good way to, for you to put that data into my algorithm and come up with different types. Now, I don't know. Now, I'm just making this up right out of whole cloth. This is, this is not a theory of Tom Campbell's. I'm just saying that there, there could be patterns like that, or you have Myers-Briggs. You know, they break into 16 different groups of personality types. And it could be that the system had 16 groups of things and they randomly mixed and matched all of those to come up with IUOCs, proclivities or things. You know, in the beginning when there was no, when there was no way to, to uh, just go in and get averages because there wasn't really any averages yet. It must have had some mechanism to, to do that. So I just think of ways that it could be done logically and then I try to think of what's the most effective or efficient way to do that. And mm -hmm. that's all. So it, actually, it's, it's uh, interesting that you're bringing this up because you uh, said that a few months ago in another fireside chat. And um, actually, when you said that, um, and, and there already you didn't claim that you had verified this, you were just, you know, thinking out loud. But then I thought, but that would then only apply to those who were kind of newly created and not to mm -hmm. anyone who has lots of previous lifetimes which would mean that anyone who would claim that their character traits fit exactly their zodiac sign would be a brand new created <laughs> IOC, you know? <laughs> so, so I thought many people maybe would not like that idea yeah. necessarily. Well, but, um, well, you know, Frank, the, the idea is that the system would like to spread characteristics out among the possibilities, right? I mean, if it's, it has to create new seats, again, it wants maximum diversity. So if it has some kind of a set of what the possibilities are, and if it has some way of then doing a random selection of those, 
and that a random selection, I don't know how, how that might be, then you may end up having things then that we could look at, you know, from down, from down here in the, in the virtual reality, we may look at things and say, oh, I see patterns. You know, there's, I can break people into 16 different groups, or I can break people into 12 different groups. I see these patterns. And then you could make up a good story of, you know, why those patterns are like that. And then you could name it and become famous. But it, it may have a, a connection into the algorithm or into the ways that the system decides, you know, how to, how to ensure diversity in new IUOCs. Now, you have a little bit of a problem. You don't want all the IUOCs to start at zero. Totally, you know, high entropy, you know, zero quality and build yourself up because every time you put new people in, you're dragging down the hole. You're making it very difficult for everybody else. So you'd want to put them in somewhere near the middle, right, as far as quality goes, because then they just are kind of like everybody else. And that would make their choices just like everybody else. And that would work much better. For the same reason, you don't want to put everybody in with, you know, super high quality because that's not helpful either to the whole. You need to put everybody in kind of in the middle and then let them diverge based on the quality of their choices. But you don't want to start them too far away from what is typical. Otherwise, you're biasing their experiences. You know, you're setting them up for certain kinds of experiences at that at that point, and now you're you're kind of putting biases into the into the game, and you don't want to do that. So these are the things I think about when I get asked the question. Well, how do we get new new IUCs? And then I just look at what seems like it's most reasonable, and I say that, but I'm not saying, listen, here's how it's done, you know, and this is a fact. I don't do that when I'm talking about the LCS. I don't, you know, I don't claim that kind of of insight into how, you know, the LCS, you know, what, what the LCS does all day in its office. You know, I, I don't know that. If I can just add one last thought, because then I was thinking, okay, if some, you know, IUOCs are indeed cloned with their entire history of past experience packets be cloned as well, you know, could you, or, or wouldn't it? So could you recognize mm -hmm. a new IOC because, you know, you try to look for past experiences and there are none? Or would you find that, you know, uh, several entities suddenly have the exact same past experience history? And, um, you know, now we have 1,000 times more people than um, <laughs> several 10,000 times back. And then uh, back uh, in our history, we all have the same uh, life experiences. Um, yeah. But maybe that's all pretty yeah. speculative. Yeah, it's speculative. But I think the, the answer there is that The new ones really wouldn't have past life experiences, but most people have no access to past life experiences anyway. So the fact that you've had thousands or you had none for 99.9% of the population, there's no difference. You know, they don't really have that and there's no way to accurately assess them and say, well, here's his experiences and here's his and we can compare the two and see if they're the same. There's no way to do any of that. So my guess is, is that the, the system starts them with no experience. So they just start with the with the uh, potential 
that's kind of average, somewhere in the average, you know, maybe plus or minus, you know, 4 dB or something. They just start in there somewhere. And then what they experience becomes their experience. So they uh, probably, being a beginner, probably would never get to the point that they could start looking at past experiences. And if they did, they may find that they only went back so far and then there was a blind. You know, that's a possibility. But it's a good bet that they probably have to be around through enough cycles that by the time they got to the point they were looking at their past lives, they probably had a, they'd have plenty to keep them busy to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. All right, Tom. All of the people present have presented their questions. Um, I have a question from a couple who weren't able to show up, and this is from Giuseppe. He says, hello to everyone. Um, I want to ask Tom from MBT View how one should deal with romantic love. Tom had been told that he will find his true love from his NPMR, that's a non-physical matter reality friends. Can we all find out that way who will be the one? How, how romantic love works? What is its function in this virtual reality? Second part. Okay. Well, I think both parts I can answer kind of together is that now everyone isn't going to find out, you know, that they have a, a true love that's only two years old and they're going to meet him when they're 35. You know, that's not likely to happen. Um, it just happened to me. Unusual things like that will happen to individuals, not just me. All, all through, there will be people who will be able to tell stories like that. So those stories are not rare, but it's not going to be an experience just that everybody's going to go have. That's the system does those things for its own reasons. So they just sometimes happen. So what is this thing about romantic love? Well, the, the pressures that push us toward making important choices almost all center around relationship. That's where the rubber meets the road in making choices that will help evolve you or de-evolve you. It's almost always about relationship. Not always. There's some of us, you know, have other big choices that have big moral values to them and so on, and they're important as well. But on an everyday, the everyday things that happen to you where your where your choices matter the most is going to be in relationship to people. Now, relationship to your boss, you know, to your significant other, to your children, just to everybody you have relationship with. It's how you deal with those relationships. And the deeper the relationship gets, the more significant choices you have. So having a significant other is important to have that significant other because that opens up possible what happenings, possible scenarios, possible choices that you don't have. If all of your relationships are more superficial than that, then 
your choices will be more superficial than that. It's in those deep relationships. Now, it could be with a parent or with a sibling or your next door neighbor. You know, I'm just talking about people. When I say significant other, I don't necessarily mean opposite sex spouse. I just mean people who are very significant in your life, who have a, you have a deep connection with in your life. That's a significant other. The more significance, generally, the deeper the relationship. The less significance, the lighter and more superficial the relationship. So we have these romantic relationships that are pushed by our instincts, as we talked about in the beginning. We have instincts to pair up. We have instincts to have sex. We have instincts to, you know, to do the things we do as far as gender relationships. And those instincts push us in those directions. Those instincts also put us into these significant other relationships. And that may be a spouse relationship or a, a dear friend or whatever. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're same sex, opposite sex, or whatever. Maybe your best friend is your dog, you know, and maybe that's your significant other, you know, that could be too. But these relationships give us the opportunities to deal with questions of ego and belief and self-centeredness and that sort of thing, whereas relationships that are more superficial never challenge us at very deep levels. The deeper the relationship, the deeper the challenge for you. So that's why they're so important. They're tremendously important. You'll learn more from your significant others that are in your life than you will from, you know, everybody else. And if you have a life and you have two or three or four or five significant others in it, that's a lot. You don't have a life with, you know, 300 significant others in it. You have a life with 300 acquaintances, but only a handful of significant others. And you may have a handful. You may have four or five or six people that you're really, really close to and have deep relationships with. But these are the relationships that challenge you. Now, if it's all a bunch of just good friends and you all have been good friends for 50 years, those may be deep relationships, but they don't challenge you much unless all of your friends live together. Because then when you live together, you create all kinds of conflicts. Well, I want to do this, but I want to do that. But I want to live in a big house, but I want to live in a small house. But, you know, you suddenly, when you live together, it throws in a whole lot of potential conflicts that you have to deal with your ego and with somebody else's ego. And that's why those are so important. So it's the people who not only have deep connections, but they have deep connections within a, what, a small space to maneuver in, to where you have to deal with each other and with each other's needs and with each other's issues and with each other's buttons and with each other's proclivities and attitudes and everything else. That's that's the rich ground for growing up. So that's why it matters. So our instincts lead us there to pair up. And then 
the deeper that gets, the more challenged our egos and our fears are. Most of our fears have to do with, with our own selves. You know, we're not good enough or strong enough or smart enough or good looking enough or competent enough or whatever. Smart enough, you know, we have fears that mostly have to do with us. And if we just sit in a vacuum, well, you know, those fears don't amount to anything. We never have to deal with them. But when we get into a deep relationship in which we're living with somebody, then all of those things get triggered and massaged and, and punched. And then we get to make the choices that all that are important as far as our growth goes. So that's why, and that's what makes them important. Okay, Tom, we have one more question from someone who couldn't make it today. They've submitted a question, though. This is from Gary from the UK. He says, Tom, in your MBT model, the subconscious is the repository of all our fears. And you have said once that we get rid of all of our fears, or when we do, there will be no subconscious. Bruce Lipton's interpretation of the subconscious is that it holds all the programs that automatically affect our thoughts and behavior from all the things taught to us by our parents in our childhood years through to the cultural programs we've accepted throughout the rest of our lives. He points out that some attributes of the subconscious are very negative, such as the fears that you also speak about, but it also holds the programs that we are entirely uh, useful to us, such as basic things like learning to walk, or in later life, learning to drive so that we can do these things on autopilot without having to relearn these skills from scratch every time. I guess this is a question about the computer architecture of the LCS, because I assume that when you say, when we get rid of our fears, there is no subconscious. You're not implying that we will also lose all of the useful programs stored there. I know that you say, ultimately, it is all functions of consciousness and the way we compartmentalize the LCS for the convenience of being able to talk about it. But just for clarity, could you explain where you see the non-fearful programs from early life existing? And secondly, in your model, where do the programs for operating the avatar reside? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, just a matter of nomenclature and semantics is what we mean by the words we, we say. Um, the subconscious that I kind of banish with, with uh, getting rid of the fear is the subconscious that people talk about when they say, um, you know, their fears well up. They have uh, behavior that they do and they're not sure why they do it. They have feelings that just come from, from nowhere and then they feel them. And it's not, again, you don't think about being angry. Oh, I should be angry now. You know, anger just happens. And the subconscious was meant to, to answer all of those things that happen in consciousness that were not intentional. That's kind of, I think, where Freud was coming from when he defined the subconscious. You have your conscious mind, and that's your intentional mind. 
That's what you do on purpose because you want to do it. Those are the things you know. Okay, that's your that's the memory you can recall. So that's what you're in control of is the conscious mind. Then because there was a whole lot of things that people aren't in control of and a whole lot of things that come from places that, that uh, are not intentional, including memories that just bubble up from nowhere and other things like that, Freud had to have another basket to collect all those things that are not controlled by our conscious awareness, by our intention. So he called it a subconscious, and then he just offloaded all the stuff that, you know, wasn't stuck somewhere else into that, all the non-intentional stuff. So it's the fears and the, the um, you know, people have a, a sense of, it's not just fears, but have a sense that there's some part of them deep down that just is problematic and there's nothing they can do about it. Throw up your hands and, well, I just can't do that. That's just me. And the deep down level in my subconscious, I'm just fearful or I have these, these issues. I have anger. I have this. I have that. You know, I've, I was abused or I was uh, abandoned. And now deep down at this level, and it affects all kinds of things I do, but it's not my fault. You know, I, I'm not aware of it. It just comes out and I'm helpless. And it was against that sort of thinking that I talked about you get rid of your subconscious. You get rid of all of that stuff that's basically fearful things that are problems and negative. You don't have those anymore. Once you, once you get rid of that fear, all that disappears and you don't have that stuff that comes out and haunts you and, and your, your feelings and your actions, your anger. And you think, well, Boy, where does that come from? Why did I just suddenly get so angry when that person told me they thought, you know, that I was totally wrong and didn't know what I was talking about and I got angry? Why was that? Well, that's the part that I was referring to as far as you don't have that subconscious. Other people will say, well, my sexual attitudes are not my own. I don't choose to be sexual. I don't choose to want to do all this. It's just deep inside of me. And I just feel impe- you know, compelled to do these things. I feel compelled to go out and find a mate. I'm compelled to have children. I'm compelled to do all these things. And I don't know where that compulsion comes from. So we'll throw that into that subconscious with all the other things that we don't know where they come from. And that's part of the subconscious. Well, those mainly come from our instincts. That's what Freud called the id. And the id lives down there in the subconscious. You're not aware of the id. It just sits there and churns out attitudes and feelings, but you're not really the source of them. You're not in control of them. They happen. So that's why they get thrown into the sub subconscious, sub-aware, you know, below your own, your own uh, volition, your own intent. All right, and that sort of thing goes away also when you get rid of your fears. You realize, of course, you're a sexual being. That's part of being a homo sapien, and that you've got these instincts, and these instincts will nudge you and, and give you feelings and urges and that sort of thing, and you need to accept them and then deal with them in a positive way. You know, So that all becomes 
not something that's hidden down in the dark areas of your soul someplace. It becomes just a part of who you are. So those things also I was talking about. But now, you know, people like Bruce have uh, evidently have, have decided, well, there's some other things that are unknown and unseen that we don't do by our own volition, and that's our programming. Okay, well, anything that we don't do on purpose, we throw it down in that subconscious. Well, instead of doing that, making that subconscious kind of the, the basket where we throw everything that comes out automatically, I don't necessarily do that. So now this is just a choice in semantics. Those things we just talked about is what I call the subconscious, and that's the stuff that disappears once you get rid of your fear. The stuff that's automatic is just learned behavior. It's learned motor skills like learning to walk or learning to talk. That doesn't, we don't have to put that in the subconscious because we no longer have to think about where we place our feet and how to move them. We just do them automatically. That's that programming. I don't stick that in the subconscious. I say that's just a part of us. It's a part of us that we have memorized, if you will. It's a part of us that we we do without thinking. We just walk. We have an intention to go from A to B, and to walk that distance, we just do it. We don't think about what leg we're going to move next and what the weight should be on our heel or on the ball of our foot. We just do it. And we can learn that in anything. When you learn to be a runner, you don't do the same things as when you walk. You kind of leap and you always land on your heel. And then from that heel, you roll up onto your toes because that's the shock absorption that keeps you from you know, damaging all your joints. And that's not natural. And when people first start to run, they tend to run flat-footed. Bang, 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 you know, flat-footed. And they tend to hurt their knees and other things because it takes you to develop muscles in order to do that leap and that heel land and roll to the toes. So somebody reads a book or gets a coach and they tell you, well, you're not running in the right way. That's why your knees hurt. And then you practice it and then you get better at it. And then you forget about it. Whenever you run, you just do it right because you've learned or you swim, you learn to swim. You learn the right kind of strokes and styles. And then once you jump in the water, you just do it right. Well, I don't put that in the subconscious. All the programming that uh, um, we have, the things we just do, I say that we, we learn that, and that gets part of our, uh, you know, in our consciousness, we've got sets of tools, tools that we use, things that we learn how to, how to manipulate. And our body, you know, and our muscular is one of those things. We learn how to catch a, a ball that's been hit up in the air and it's going to go, you know, 150 feet and we're going to run and hold up a glove such that that ball and doing its trajectory with the wind and the influences that's there is going to hit just in this little spot. That glove is going to hit right there and we can make that happen. Not because we're so clever at projecting uh, parabolas in space, and calculating wind driftage and other things, it's because we've just learned how to do that and we do it automatically without thinking. We build up those programs. And that's the way 
consciousness works is you build up a program and programs just like a program and calculator. Now you can learn how to do square roots or cube roots. And if you work at it, you can eventually train your mind to be just like a calculator. And somebody can say, what's the crew, the cube root of 6,842. You can tell them just like that. Not because you thought about it and went through a clever process and you're just fast at doing math, but you've trained your consciousness just like there's a little calculator in there and you just put in the number, hit the button and up comes the answer and you see the answer and you can speak it. You know, these things can be done. They take practice. You can learn how to memorize things. It takes practice. But you can get the brain to not only do parabolic trajectories. You can, you know, it's another calculation. First time you throw a child a ball, he's, you know, like this, trying to catch it. And the first hundred times he does that, he begins building up an algorithm that starts calculating trajectories. And pretty soon he knows where that ball's going. Almost the instant you, it leaves your hand because he's, he's learned that. So these are programs. Remember? Consciousness, digital computers, programs, calculators. You can take a subset of that consciousness and make it into a calculator that does cube roots. If you work at it, not many of us want to spend the hours required to do cube roots. It's just not that thing we want to do, that we want to spend thousands of hours, you know, to program our minds to do that. But some people do, and they can do that. It's a possibility. So that's the way I see it. I don't put that, throw all that stuff that's automatic into the subconscious. I put that elsewhere. I say, that's just a program in consciousness. We can program subsets of our consciousness to do all kinds of amazing things. Parabolic trajectories is just, you know, one of them. Otherwise, nobody would ever catch anything that was thrown at them if you couldn't, you know, if you couldn't uh, calculate a parabolic trajectory. And if you were in a different gravitational field, you'd have to, you'd have to practice to have a whole new calculation. The old calculator wouldn't work anymore. You'd never catch anything. And then eventually you'd develop another little calculator that, ca that calculated parabolic trajectories in that gravitational field. Like the people who put on the glasses that give you images that are upside down. This was a test done back in the 50s. So they put on a pair of lenses, reverse all your images upside down. So now people seem to be standing on the ceiling and, you know, going, everything's the other way. And at first, the people who put on these glasses that invert everything, they can't move around because a door now looks like the door's hanging from the ceiling, you know, and, and they, they, you know, it takes them, they have to kind of feel their way around through things to make the adjustment. And it's very, very clumsy. But after a few days of walking around with everything inverted, they can walk around in that space just fine. They're not, you know, they're not clumsy at it. And if they wear them all the time, they can get just as functional walking around in a space where everything's inverted as they can otherwise. And then they take the glasses off and, oh, my God, they can. You know, it takes them a while to, to adjust again to things being right side up. That's just training 
that computer called consciousness into how it processes the data. Okay, so all those automatic things are just subroutines, I guess we should say. They're just subroutines that are in the consciousness computer there. That you know, this little this little information system we call consciousness. So it's in our own, there's subroutines that are inside our own IUOC, and we can we can generate them, we can get rid of them. And I don't necessarily feel like I throw that stuff into subconscious just because we can't, we don't, in, we don't uh, intellectually access them. They get accessed as needed. It's like a call function goes up. Oh, somebody threw a ball. Now I need to catch it. So the call goes out to the, to the, the uh, trajectory calculator and I start to run in the direction that my feet take. And my hand reaches in a direction that it seems like the best thing to do. And I just let all that flow. And if I don't let it flow and I try to do it from my intellect, I can never catch anything. I'd be clumsy. So it all becomes intuitive, not intellectual. So it's just different in the way Bruce and I uh, label things, basically, is the only difference there. Okay, well, I hope that answered your question, Gary. Gary's on listening mode. Um, Internet connection is not the best. So I'm going to go ahead with one of the MBT forum questions. It's, we've got about 10 minutes left. And if we don't get to all the MBT forum questions, we will do another addendum that we got some good feedback on last time. Uh, they appreciated that all the questions were asked. And I also have some Questions that were emailed to Keith that I'm going to get a copy to Oliver of so we can make them official questions in the um, in the database there. So one question, Tom, we've got a few minutes left, um, is from MBT Forum user Hendrik. You've mentioned having several MPMR beams whom you have interacted with for a long time since you were very young. Did they help you develop aspects of MBT? Did they already understand certain aspects? And what elements of MBT were new to their understanding? Well, I got very little direct help from anybody developing MBT. It was required that I develop myself out of my own experience. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to answer questions. You know, if, if it was dictated to me or somebody said, oh, it's like this or it's like that, and it wasn't my own, it'd just be a belief of mine. that th I believe that this is the way it is. But it had to be an experience of mine. It had to get from my own experimentation, from my own experience. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been real, and I wouldn't be very good at answering questions. It... Uh, so it had to be mine to be authentic. So I had to authentically create it out of my own experience. So I didn't get much direct help. But I got plenty of nudges as far as I needed to write a book. I needed to understand it well enough that it made sense. You know, instead of just saying, well, I sort of got it and that's good enough, which is what we do a lot of the time, you know, 
I had the inclination, well, things will get clearer if you're forced to write them down. So write them down. And I did. And then I'd look at the writing and I'd say, well, I could see why people are confused. <laughs> that's not very, that's not very coherent. Let me see if I can't fix that and kept working at it. So I had the, the nudges to put it down, to write it, to do it and uh, to keep working at it, to put in the years of the book writing process was about a five year process. And that's probably putting, oh, I don't know, probably 30, 30 to 40 hours a week into it. Almost as much time writing a book as I put into my job. Almost as much. So I could put in five or six hours a day and still do my job. And then I could do it on weekends to make up for the those other hours I didn't get to do it. So almost a full-time job, not quite for five years. Um, so there's a lot of effort that went into it. And obviously I didn't have everything figured out when I started. I just had the f basic pieces of it. I had all the, the consciousness facts and the material facts that I had gathered through my experience, but putting those, finding out some way to string those together. I didn't know how to do that, but it came and I'd get nudges to keep going and nudges to work it out. And it, um, eventually pulled together, but it was all indirect in the nudges. Never, here's how it works. And if I tried to ask, well, I'm stuck on this point, you know, what's, I got this conflict, I got this and this, and the two are incompatible with each other, which one's right and which one's wrong. I never could get an answer for that. There's just was no answer. It's like, figure it out. So, that's that was my experience and i think that's probably true for most people no i don't know i guess there are people who are who are mediums and they take dictation from some spirit guide or something and they're just supposedly passing it on but uh, they actually have to have those concepts in their mind or they wouldn't be able to interpret them so there's limitations there as well but i didn't get that kind of kind of help. And I don't recall that anytime any of my non-physical friends said, Oh, I didn't understand that. Now some, I've run into non-physical beings who obviously knew less about the nature of reality than I did. Because everybody you run into in the non-physical doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're, uh, you know, have any particular knowledge or wisdom just by not being physical doesn't make you wise or knowledgeable. But most of my friends knew a whole lot more than I did, but they weren't saying anything because it had to be mine. And even if they did say something, they may or may not have been able to understand it fully. So that's why you have to do it yourself. Yeah, we that was highlighted very well in the last interview that we did, um, The Science of the Akashic Records when you went through the whole process of how you determined the databases, which was for thousands of years known as Akashic Records, their, their use, how you tested each one to see um, that the past was a void of free will, and how you tested the others very, very 
scientifically, repeatedly, mm-hmm. over over a, a long period of time. So that was um, very much um, a lot of research. Uh, and what you're saying right well, now, you all had to do that. Yeah, well, that's why it took me. That's why it took me 35 years <laughs> before I started writing the book. It's tedious doing science and checking things out and doing it again and changing a variable and doing it again. And then, you know, when you heal somebody and they happen to get better, well, maybe they just got better anyway. You know, you have to do it many, many, many times. So in order to come up with with facts of consciousness, it it took a lot of time and a lot of work to get there. It wasn't just these are the things I believe. That wouldn't have been helpful. It had to be these are the things that I figured out through logical derivation and through experimental, you know, experimenting with with the logic to see whether it made sense or not. So it took a long it took a long time to to figure these things out. How you tested the past was interesting because you mentioned you can see it as a movie. You can join it as a movie um, or you can simply get the information very telling of a virtual reality and easy to understand because in the dream reality, that's what you're doing. And and most people are familiar or practically everyone familiar with the dream reality. So that analogy should be very um, easy to understand how you were able to test out those databases. Sometimes I was looking for help, but none came. It, uh, that was not going to be made easy. And later, by the time I was done with it all, I realized there was a good reason why uh, I didn't get any direct help. You don't learn as much if you somebody tells you the answer than if you figure it out. I think it's why you always say, if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. And it's one of the things that's really significant about MBT is that it is focused on the individual and their own experience. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you next month.